Welcome to The How of Business with your host, Henry Lopez, the podcast that helps you start, run, and grow your small business. And now, here is your host. Welcome to this episode of The How of Business. This is Henry Lopez, and my co-host, David Begin, is back with me on this episode. Welcome, David. Thanks for having me. I appreciate it, Henry. Yeah, we're going to talk about the recent sale of one of our businesses, I Top It, which was our frozen yogurt shop. For those of you who've been listening to this podcast, I'm sure you've heard me mention that business many, many times. And David and I have, have chatted about it in previous episodes as well. But we recently sold that business. And so we're going to chat about uh, why and how, after owning that successful business for 10 years, why we decided and how we went about doing so. So we're going to chat about that in this episode. If you want to receive more information about the Howa business, including the show notes page for this episode, just visit thehowofbusiness.com. But before we dive into it, David, I just want to get a brief update, share with everybody what's going on with you since you're not on the show as often. So Car Wash OS has been what you've been focusing on mostly. Update us on what's going on with that. Yeah, so I'm, I'm developing an operational consulting uh, company that focuses on operational consulting specifically for the tunnel car wash environment. And so we called it Car Wash OS. I stole a, a name from a business that Henry and I started maybe three or four years ago and sunsetted. Uh, so we get some people that are a little bit confused when we talk about Car Wash OS, but I wanted to develop a series of programs to help new investors if they get in the car wash business, especially the tunnel car wash business, kind of work on all the stuff that's got to be done before and during and after a car wash opening so that they'll develop good operational habits and have the tools and content necessary to make sure that they're, they're executing well in this very competitive car wash environment. Competitive. And one of the things, you know, you and I have talked about many times you've educated me on is that the landscape of who's coming into the car wash business has changed quite a bit. Whereas traditionally, if I might generalize, it used to be multi-generational you to take over your dad's car wash kind of thing or was in the family now you have people like us from the corporate world and the investment world coming to the business and they need the help because they don't have the background the knowledge the experience they they need help with how to do this well yeah that's exactly right and it's people we we tend to attract people that are forward thinking that realize hey i don't first of all they have to admit i don't have a lot of experience in this and i but i want to run a good car wash which not, not, not everybody has that, that idea. And the people that say, you know, I, I want to set things up properly so that I'm executing and running them well, those are the people that we tend to attract. I think there's quite a few new investors who think they can do it themselves. And we've talked about the myth of car washing. People think it's a, it's a uh, cash, <laughs> cash cow and it's a self-running business and there's not much effort that needs to be put into it. But I think I see a lot of my clients really fight that feeling when they finally get into it, you know, maybe about eight to six, six to eight weeks before opening, they realize how hard it is to, to operate a car wash. And uh, they, they're always fighting that they wished it was easier, but they, they come to that conclusion that these are very operationally intensive businesses and you don't actually wash cars. So you get equipment and you get people to do the work. And if you're not going to be involved as the owner, or you're not actually doing the work as a solopreneur would do, then it, it behooves you to have good equipment um, and good, I'm sorry, good processes and procedures mm -hmm. so that your, your, your team is executing 
the way you need them to execute. And it's carwashos.com if we want to learn more. That's correct. Yeah, carwashos.com. Great. All right, well, let's dive into the topic of this episode. Now we've got that update, which is selling I top it. So I, I thought I'd walk through a, a background and, and timeline of the business so that everybody's on the same page on what this business was. That the idea uh, was one that I brought to you and the way that I came to this idea is back in 2010 timeframe, probably maybe 2009, this frozen yogurt, self-serve frozen yogurt concept I was exposed to it because my daughter had been to one in a suburb near where we lived at that time in, in the Dallas, Texas area. And she told me about it and she was describing it and it sounded compelling. And I finally went and checked it out. And I thought, boy, this is interesting. This is a disruption of the traditional going to an ice cream parlor to get a treat. It's about family time. It's about people being happy and sharing memories and so that's when I brought it to you, because at the time in Colorado Springs, there were none right back in 2010, 2011. Yeah, correct. And so that's when we decided, because you, <laughs> I don't know how I convinced you, because you had a perfectly good and time-consuming business with the car wash, but we decided to open not one, but two locations at once, right? Yeah. Yeah. We opened, I think, the second location within six to nine months of the first one. Yeah, might have, I think it was less than that, I, I, as I recall. But I'll have to look. I'll go back. And yeah, look. I think then, we opened the first one in February, and yeah. the second one was open maybe in June. So yeah, 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 probably yeah, right. Yeah, so a lot, lot less time. So, so just to to go back, you know, I had explored franchises because in this space there are franchises, but I felt back then, and and I still think it was the right decision that we both had enough business acumen and experience. I certainly had enough background in developing systems that we felt we could create our own. And I think we did that very well. And I think that that's one of the things that we brought to it was we, we had enough confidence. I think we were right in thinking that way that we could create our own brands, right? Yeah, I would. Yeah, absolutely. And I think one of the testaments we had to that, a lot of people would ask us if they came into our shop, is this a franchise? Because mm -hmm. it had a great look to it, it had a great brand. It had a good feel that, you know, it was well thought out. And a lot of that was, testament to your creativity and the way that you created the brand. I give you credit for the way you created the brand and the systems. And so people really felt like it was a, it was a franchise. They asked us, Hey, is this a franchise? How do we get involved in it? Or, you know, or can we open up iTop and in California, we, we got inquiries like that. And I think that was a testament to, to what, to what you had done. Yeah. And no, I appreciate that. We worked together on it. We had a designer that helped us with some elements of it as well. But we did a lot of planning. And, and speaking of planning, I just did release a couple of episodes that if you haven't listened to them, I encourage you to do so. I just released an episode on business plans. So my thoughts on how you go about putting together business plans for a new business. That's episode 382. And then also I just released an episode 384. Uh, or if this episode, it might come out after this episode. But anyways, it'll be about financial projections my belief in planning is that although it is just projections, I believe that you got to put some numbers to it to make sure that the business model makes financial sense. Even though certainly for a business like this, because we had no experience, we were kind of guessing at a lot of things. But to me, that was a necessary part of the development process is to put together some effort behind the planning. Yeah, I think it's so important to put put together those numbers, even if you're not correct, because it gives you a basic 
basic view of what it takes to be successful. I think people go into businesses not having a clear understanding of what where the revenue is going to come from and how much, what the expense profiles look like. And you you and I had run small businesses before mm-hmm. we did ITOP it. So we were relatively comfortable running with, with good estimates in terms of financial projections, but a lot of people don't do it. Yeah. Yeah. And then we did the research, you know, you and I did a trip down to uh, Phoenix and we, we got the help of the distributor that we thought we were going to go with at the time, the, the raw goods uh, distributor. And we did a couple of site visits down there. So we did as much research. I did site visits, of course, here in the Dallas area where this concept already existed. So we, we learned, we did a lot of research. And then of course, at the end of the day, it's, it's always a risk. It's always a a chance that you take that you'll build it and they will come. So right. we opened those two locations in 2011. And then shortly thereafter, the market went from our two locations to, I think at a peak, I counted 14 locations in total in the Colorado Springs market, which is, yeah. you know, way more than we, than the market could sustain. Right. 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 Yeah. I think, I think we ended up seeing a boom. It, it was, it felt like a fad, I guess, when it started taking off and, Maybe we didn't realize how much of a fad it would be. We didn't realize there was a lot of other people also interested in looking at doing it. Um, and again, it's one of those biz- businesses that looks easy. So I think that's what attracted a lot of people to it. Yeah, I think it's such an important point. I think that's something we definitely overlooked is, was this a trend? Was it a fad? And it definitely had a component of that. Now, you know, 10 years later, that has calmed down. And, and this concept, I believe, is here to stay particularly the self-serve component of it. I think it did revolutionize that segment. But to your point, what I didn't really think about or really predict enough is that the barrier to entry is so low. We'll talk about it in a moment. In the end, I think one of the things that helped us is that we did invest in our finish out and the quality of our shop. But boy, in Colorado Springs and elsewhere where I saw yogurt shops, they, they were just slapped up. I mean, these were terrible operations is the truth of it because everybody wanted to get into on the gold rush. Right. 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 And then, yeah, exactly. And I think, you know, I think we, we did make that investment. I kind of thought we might've spent more money than we should have, but I think in the long term, (laughs) it, it made it sustainable and successful. Yeah. Yeah. We, we, and what it caused there that we, we have talked about many times is did we spend too much on the finish out? And therefore that's, sunk cost. That's a capital investment that then now puts pressure on the business to recuperate. Uh, But I don't know. I don't know that I would have cut too much in hindsight now. I do think, again, as we just said, that it's one of the components as to why we survived. I think so. Yeah, I would probably tend to agree with that. I don't know what we would have done different, to be honest, um, with, with, with the finish out. But, you know, we, we, we can talk about some of the flaws of the model of self-serve frozen yogurt a little later on, if you want. Sure. Yeah, absolutely. All right. So at the end of the lease of the end of the five years on the second location, we had to close that location. That was a failure. And that was rough. We talked about that way back, actually, David, on episode 35, you and wow. I debriefed <laughs> on that. So we're not going to relive that pain completely yeah. here, but that was a blow. That, that was a huge setback, right? Yeah. Well, that that's a testament to you, Henry, because episode 35 was five years ago. So yeah, you've been doing podcasting for over five years. I have. So and, yeah, uh, yeah, it, it was a blow. Now, 
to be fair about the business is it broke even. So it, mm-hmm. it kept making, but we weren't able to recoup our investment in the business. Yeah, that was that. And that, so that, that was a large sum of money that we lost there that then was to the detriment of the overall business. But the, we were just at a point where we just did not have the confidence that we could renew the lease and go another five years there and see yeah. any growth. So that that is another lesson learned. Again, we're not going to rehash it completely, but the biggest takeaway from that I encourage you to go back and listen to episode 35 is the lesson learned was about location, right? We thought we had a great location. Now in hindsight, I can pick it apart, but at the time we thought it was going to be a great location. Yeah. It was in a shopping center. It was right, you know, close to a large grocery store, very large, big box stores in the shopping center, but it turned out to be a location that had been open a long time. And believe it or not, Henry, that location is still open. Still empty. Yeah. It's still five years later. Tells you something that tells you something that that we just not see. Yeah. All right. Fortunately, our first location, which is the one that we sold has been operating. We operated it for 10 years, profitable every year, including last year during COVID that's success. Yes. And and I attribute it to multiple things that we'll talk about, but one of the things, and, and you played a big role in this, is that because I think you brought this over from one of the many things, but one of the things that you learned and did so well with the car wash is being focused on those expenses and managing those expenses. And do we need to spend here? Do we need to spend there? That I think kept us operating a very tight operation that allowed us to squeeze out the most we could in the way of margins. That's, yeah, that's one agreed. of the key. I think that's one of the keys. Yeah. Yeah. I would agree with that. And we did a good job of kind of looking at our product mix and figuring out which products were more profitable than other products. And when we ended up with our new POS system, that gave us a lot of great information uh, to be able to analyze what we're selling and why we're selling it, which was good. So we were able to look at the revenue side of it, but we also were able to manage expenses. And yeah, being involved in, in the finance part of it, I think was really important. You know, I ended up doing the you know, got after I closed the car washes, I ended up doing the the accounting again. I ended up doing the QuickBooks. And, you know, I, I think business owners should be, if, if it's not a very complicated business and there's not a lot of transactions, I think there's a lot of benefits to the owners doing QuickBooks because it does give you insight into where money is going and how it's leaving and places where you need to think about how many is being spent. I mean, I can't tell you how many times I'd go into QuickBooks and I'd see double charges or I see us having a charge that I didn't realize. And by getting into the QuickBooks and doing it myself, it became, I became a lot more aware of expenses and, oh, these people raised their prices and they, you know, I didn't know that. And maybe we need to look for another vendor. Yeah. This is such a huge point. We talk about this all the time on this show And so many business owners that I talk to that though, and I get it, they'll use the excuse that I'm just not good with the numbers. I hate the financials. As business owners, I don't think we get that luxury. That doesn't mean that you have to do the bookkeeping, but you have to be aware, clearly aware, at least on a monthly basis on what is flowing through the business. What are the transactions? Where's the money going? Where is it coming from? You cannot surrender that responsibility as a small business owner. Yeah. Yeah. You either have to do the books or you have to review the books diligently every month. And I would say the vast majority of small business people don't do that. And it becomes a surprise, right? They're just, as long as I have money in my account, I'm okay. I don't think about the rest of it, but 
you know, we've talked about horror stories on this podcast before of business owners that find out that, you know, money's being siphoned off one way or another, or there were expenses that shouldn't have been there that really impact the business. And, you know, people have gone out of business because they didn't manage that, that part of the business. That's right. Yeah. I've worked with clients where they find out about that, you know, six months later or a year later, and then it's, it, the trail is fuzzy. It's, it's unclear what happened and, and then you, it's very hard to do anything about it. Correct. Uh, you mentioned another thing that's so critical as well, because we were close to the numbers and we analyzed these things, our product mix, we were always looking at. That's another thing that I find that small business owners do when you ask them, what is your most profitable product or service? And why do you still offer this product? Oh, because we've always done it that way. Or I don't know. You have to continuously look into what's most profitable, especially because as you articulated, your sourcing prices, your raw materials, if you're in anything similar to what we're doing, where we're buying materials, uh, you know, the raw materials and then selling something, if there's a price fluctuation on something like for us, like chocolate, I need to be aware of the impact of that on my mix of toppings, for example. And so that's something I think we were very diligent about managing and stay on top of. And also then our pricing and not being afraid to raise prices when we needed to, so that we could continue to be a profitable ongoing concern. That's another big mistake I see people going is being afraid to raise prices. Yeah, I would agree with that. And I think our customers appreciated our quality and then we needed to have our price point commensurate with our quality, first of all. But then we were looking at different products that were making more money and, and people that understand the frozen yogurt business would say, well, you charge by the ounce, so what difference does it make? Well. You know, you have yogurt and toppings. And as you said, you end up, you're trying to find a blended rate for your toppings because you don't know exactly how much of each topping people are putting on. But we also were pretty inventive in coming up with a flat rate cup. Mm-hmm. You want to talk about that, Henry? Yeah, yeah. You know, there, there wasn't very many yogurt shops. That no, that. and there still aren't, which is surprising. Yeah, but uh, but yeah, we, we developed something we call the weightless fun cup, which is a fixed fee. And this came out of, I remember very clearly you telling me about a conversation you had when you were in the shop and a, a, uh, a lady came in with the family, her kids and maybe their kids' friends. And you discerned, I can't remember how you discerned that it, was, it wasn't about money, like they had, you know, fair enough money. You know, you were able to discern that. It was just the peace of mind that she had that she knew how much this was going to be, right? Yeah. Regardless of whether she could have spent twice as much or twice as less, it doesn't it doesn't matter. The point, the takeaway was, which I think was an epiphany moment, was that there is this uncertainty that was happening when the kids, because kids, kids are brilliant, right? They, they get ahead of mom and dad <laughs> and they fill up that cup to the brim. And then by the time mom figures out what's going on, it's too late, right? Yeah. So kids know that they're masterful about that. But now mom knows that oh, you, you can try to game it as much as you want, little Johnny, but because I know how much I'm going to pay for that cup, regardless of how much you stuff in it, right? Yeah. So that, I think that was a breakthrough moment in understanding the psychology of the customer and our, specifically our target customer and understanding as much as we could about how that person thinks. Yeah. Yeah. And, and, and like we talked about, I think it was, it was a fun experience to make your own cup. And then we ruined it when people checked out. <laughs> it's right. like, okay, now That's for mom, it it's is. like, you know, you, you can see in her mind, we're never going to do this again. We're and, never going to do this again. And, and that wasn't what you wanted. So 
giving them, give them the fixed cup did two things. It controlled the portions, which moms really wanted to do. They didn't want to give the kids card blanc necessarily. So they wanted kids to make their own yogurt, but they didn't want them to go crazy. Plus knowing what you're spending gives you some comfort level that, okay, it's not a $3 cup. It's not a $15 cup. It's somewhere, you know, it's a $3.95 or $5.95 cup. And that gave a lot of confidence to the people that were paying for it if they needed to do that. Yeah. Yeah. I think it was a brilliant move. All right. Let's talk about a few more things that we think we did well in retrospect. And then a a couple of things that we might have done better, and then we'll get into why we sold. But we've talked about some of the things, some other things. I mean, we talked about the brand and the environment. I think we did a great job of creating an environment that was conducive to our target customers. So staying on that point, this is another thing that small business owners don't put in the effort up front and then on an ongoing basis. Who are you trying to serve? And the answer typically for small business owners is not everybody. There should be a target, an avatar that you have in mind, and that's who you try to serve the most. Now, it doesn't mean that others aren't going to come and you're not going to try to please them, but your target is who the place is built for. And so I think we did that well, like we'd already touched on the the finish out in the environment. And then as you and I were talking about before we started recording, keeping it clean and maintained was critical as well, right? Yeah, it really was. I mean, and we... We decided that our target was mom and kids, and we didn't know if that would be our target. We didn't know if it would be teenagers or people coming after the movies, or we, we had no idea, but we just kind of stuck our necks out and said, we want to target moms with kids. And so that did impact a lot of what we did in the store and keeping the store very clean because moms don't want to go to a place that's messy. They don't want to bring their kids to a place that's messy. They don't mind if their kids mess it up, but they don't want to come to a place <laughs> It's messy. And it, it did drive a lot of our decision processes, either for, for, for the better or for the worse, but at least we had a framework to work with. Mm-hmm. It included our obsession with the bathrooms being clean. It included, you know, what we offered in the way of entertainment or other activities for the kids, other events that we had in the shop. It included, you know, our choice of music, our decision not to have televisions playing broadcast channels. All of those things were purposefully chosen to create an environment that we felt would be most conducive and most appreciated by that target market. That's correct. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I think, it, I think it did, it did pay off. So related to that was our obsession on customer service. And we've talked about this several times on this show because it is an obsession that we have. Right. And so we've talked about David that, you know, because we've had moments of frustrations where we look at other businesses and we say, well, shoot, they seem to be doing just as well, and they're not losing as much sleep as we are over this customer service thing. My point of view, and then I'd like you to share yours, it's very similar, I know, but is that for me, it needed to represent me. A business is our representation. It's what we put out in a creative way into the market. And I've always believed that, therefore, I need to be proud of that creation. And that's the way I've always looked at it. And from a customer service perspective, I want the experience that my customers have to be what I would expect and want when I go somewhere. And so that's the standard, which is a very high standard that we've always tried to maintain at iTopic. Yeah, we, we got a lot of great customer comments on our customer service and it was consistent. And I'm, I'm proud of that fact. And I do think, Henry, it did make a difference long-term 
I think it made people feel good when they came in. And, uh, you know, in this age, day and age of bad customer service, I think we, we stood out. So I, I'm, I'm glad. I think it did represent us and what we wanted. But I do think it did make a difference in the overall quality of our business and how we did. I want to believe that it's one of the reasons we've survived while many of those other 13 or 14 competitors have, are gone now. Correct. Correct. Yeah. But uh, people, people came in and they expected it. And we, we got, a, you know, and I, and again, the testament to that was a lot of great comments on our customer service. The fact our employees would greet them as they came in, they would explain what was new. Uh, they would thank them for being here. They would ask if they'd been in recently uh, you know, a lot of things like that, just to make it a real warm feeling. So, yeah, yeah, I'm, 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 I'm really proud of the customer service that we offered. Yeah, so am I, and I, I think we we achieved there are tremendous things. And so, at the the underpinning of that, which is another thing we did well, is the systems, and not just the operational systems, although those were in place. We developed an operations manual. We we evolved it over time, continuously fine-tune it, everything from checklists to how to do everything in the store. But the thing that I think was most powerful, especially related to the point of customer service, is the systems around how we onboarded somebody and how we trained and coached them. I am convinced that there are very few similar size restaurant businesses that have the level of focus and training and investment that we decided to make in our employees. Yeah, I would agree with that. I think I think the new owner recognized that when the new owner came in and purchased the business. I think it was a little bit of a shock to the system for these employees to come in and, hey, you've got 30 days or 60 days, you're going to be tested on this and you've got to score an 80 to, to work here. Mm-hmm. And I think I think people appreciated that. And, you know, I think that represented our ability to give good customer service too. So yeah. Yeah. yeah, I would imagine out of a hundred yogurt shops around the country, only probably one or two are doing <laughs> to that level. Now, if you're a franchise, right, maybe, maybe you would do that. But the the systems are a testament to you, Henry, because you're, you know, you understand the value of systems. You've taught me the value of systems and you poured your heart and soul into developing those systems. And I think it did make a big difference. And I think we've talked about on the podcast before that we were thinking about maybe franchising right. uh, I top it and, and a year or two into it, we realized that the competition was, was greater than we wanted to be involved. And in. there was a lot of yogurt shops trying to franchise. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, I appreciate that. I think that as I think back, you and I, you were doing some of these same things at the car wash when we were doing it at I top it. And in many ways, I top it has been a, an experimental lab on a lot of these things that now I share with my clients and on the show of things that we did that worked and things that didn't work so well, but you and I around that same time begin to understand, especially with hourly wage employees, especially with younger employees, how much employees appreciate whether they're able to articulate it or not. I don't know because of where they are in their, you know, in their careers, but they appreciate to come in and be clearly told what the rules are of the place and have the training so that they're equipped to do the best possible job. I've talked about many times on the show that I believe that most people want to do a good job. You just as an employer, our responsibility as the business owner is to give them the tools and the resources so that they can do a good job. 
Yeah. And we invested in that. And we have been told again and again by young people that have come back and have told us how much they appreciated working for us for that reason. Yeah, I would agree with that. I think, you know, we did give them a good framework. If people don't take a job so they can do a bad job. I they mean, don't. that's, you know, think about when you took a job, you didn't take a job thinking I'm going to do a terrible job. here. I'm not, I, I don't want, I'm not going to put any effort in. I'm not going to, you know, follow the rules. You don't say that before you take the job. When you're going into a job, you think, I want to do a good job. I want to have fun. I want to add value. And it's amazing how many, you know, employers don't meet that particular worker at that point. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, but, but I think, you know, that, that, that was certainly a big epiphany for me through, throughout my management and ownership life and career was giving the employee the benefit of the doubt that they want to do a good job. And if they're not doing a good job, you know, we would take responsibility to say what's, what's happening with our systems and our processes and procedures that's now not allowing them to do a good job. Now, whether it was the procedure or whether it was our fault, it didn't matter. I, 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 we started taking the approach that, hey, it's our fault. We, we've got to either fix something We've got to improve something. We've got to add something or we have to eliminate something. And just having that mindset made a big difference, I think, for me. And I, I don't know for you, but it, oh, it huge. certainly did for me. I think it's a huge takeaway. I think that mindset of understanding when something, when an employee doesn't perform, the first question you should be asking yourself is exactly as you said, what, what could we have done better to have identified this maybe in this person before we hired them? What could we have done better in the way of training and coaching them? What, what, what system possibly failed here before we say, well, that, you know, that employee is just a bad employee. It could be that they're a bad fit, but that perspective, yeah. that mind shift, I think is so powerful, David. Yeah. Yeah. Cause, cause it, it, uh, and, and employees sense it and they know it when you care about them and you want them to be successful, mm-hmm. you've got to really want your employees to be successful. And if you take the attitude of, oh, this is a terrible employee, we need to get rid of them without going through that process of saying, well, what have we done to, to fail that employee? What have we done not to create an environment where they can be successful? Then you end up having high turnover, but we had very, you know, for this type of job and yeah. we hired a lot of, a lot of employees. It was their first job, right? It was, it was somebody who was 18 to 20 or 21, typically that age group. Uh, sometimes we'd have higher high school kids. Um, but you know, it was typically their first job and, it was amazing how easy it was for us to hire people. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Great takeaways. This is Henry Lopez with a brief pause to invite you to my next in-person live workshop focused on getting your business found online. My next online marketing workshop will be on August 19th in Plantation, Florida. During this live in-person workshop, we will work together to develop your online marketing plan to help you get your business found online. But it's more than just planning and bring your laptops because this is a working session where we will actually get stuff done to improve your online presence. From clearly identifying your target avatar to creating or updating your Google My Business page, you will walk away from this workshop knowing you have improved your online marketing so you can grow your business. For more information and to register, visit thehowabusiness.com. And don't forget to use promo code HOB20 to receive a 20% discount. 
I will personally be teaching this workshop in person. So if you're in the South Florida area, I invite you to join me. There are still some spots left and we do have limited capacity. I'm conducting this workshop at Office Evolution in Plantation, Florida, which is near downtown Fort Lauderdale on August 19th. Office Evolution is a shared workspace business center that I'm a minority owner of, and we'll be using one of the conference rooms at that location. Again, for more information and to register, visit thehowofbusiness.com, and don't forget to use the promo code HOB20 to receive a 20% discount. I look forward to meeting you at this workshop. All right. What, uh, what are some thoughts on what we could have done better? What, what I wrote down on a couple of things that particularly in the last few years that we could have done better is, is done better community involvement. And there's some reasons why that we'll get into in a moment, but better being more involved. And that's something the new owner is already doing, which is fantastic. And then advertisement, you know, you and I have not always been on the same page on the value of advertisement. Right. And so right. I, I think we maybe had some disconnects there. Uh, what else comes to mind? You were sharing some thoughts before we started recording on what else we could have done better. Yeah, I th think we sort of ran, I mean, I sort of ran out of gas at the end, probably the last two or three years. And part of that was I sold my business, uh, my other businesses that were more hands-on and, you know, actually lo locations. I used to, used to laugh. I used to drive about 80 miles a day <laughs> in my truck. Before I had an office, I would drive around each one of the each one of the businesses, and you know I'd make a circle around Colorado Springs, and it, I included the yogurt shops. But um, so I was really hands on once I sold the car washes, and I had this one location business. I think maybe I sort of ran out of gas a little bit, um, and you know we just didn't think about new ideas or ways we could, um, you know, w ways we can continue improving the business. We I wasn't thinking about new product offerings. Um, so, you know, I think, I think overall we did a good job. I would, if I had to, you know, criticize my activity, it would be that, that we sort of ran out of gas. And I think we probably, one thing I think we've kind of done better as partners is maybe we should have compensated each other for work that was done. I think you were working very diligently for years in the business where you might not have been compensated for. And I was working in the business, but I was more hands-on. I was the guy that got the call that had to go down if the yogurt machine wasn't working, but we never sort of figured out the effort that we put into it. How were we going to divide that up? Because I, I was a, I was a very large majority owner. You were a very small minority owner. I was in Colorado Springs. You were remote and I'm sure there was times that you felt like you're not being compensated properly for the effort that you're putting into it. And, you know, and as partners, I, I, don't, I don't feel like I'm being compensated. And so we, we never sort of worked those things out. And I, I would say we probably should have done that. Yeah. yeah. And that's a great point. I really hadn't, I mean, I think maybe we've touched around this, but I don't know that we've ever really had a conversation around this point. And I think it's a good one. I think the takeaway for me is in future or those listening who are looking at doing a partnership, that's not closer to 50-50. We've talked about, we don't like 50-50, but here I was 19, you were 40. Uh, what is the What's the math? 81. 81, <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> that's how bad my math is. So yeah, so there's disproportionate there where at times one, one side can feel like they're doing more than the other. And you're right. We probably should have addressed that uh, at some point and we never really did. 
Yeah. Um, yeah. And I, I, I think we should have done that. And um, yeah, I mean, I, I yeah. think, I think it would have been, would have been better. I, sure, I think yeah. I, I, you, for somebody that owned 19%, you put in a whole lot more effort and time than you were getting compensated for. And well, and that goes into one of the reasons I didn't want to sell. So, so I'm going to explore that in a moment. But, but the other thing you had brought up when we were preparing for this conversation is that for neither of us was this our primary business. It was part of a portfolio of businesses. And so that's something you, you, and you and I both suffer from shiny object syndrome. So that's part of been part of our, our operating mode and businesses, but you know, you think looking back at it now that now what's great about this new owner is there's more focus on this business for them, right? Yeah. Yeah. Now he, he has one other business, but it's, it's a business that he and his daughter are involved in and operate. So yeah, he's, he's more focused. And I think you get to the power of folk. We'll talk about the power of focus a little later on, but mm-hmm. I think we, we did get a little bit of unfocused. We were doing so many different things over the last 10, 10 or 15 years that, you know, I believe we, we got a little bit of unfocused and I top it was one of those things. We had some grandiose ideas of where this thing was going to go, but like most things in life, it didn't quite turn out that way. Yeah. All right. So we've been touching on it. You know, why did you want to sell? Part of it was again, where you are and were in life. You sold your primary business a couple of years ago. Now this was this one loan business that was taking more of your effort than made sense for you at this point in your life. Right. Yeah, it was an easy business to run. I mean, I, I have to give it that. It wasn't a difficult business from an ownership standpoint, but it was consistent. You had consistent tasks that you had to do. And w- when I had a staff of people that I could call to run over, I could ask my operations manager from the car wash to run over to the yogurt shop and take a look at a machine or take a look at the air conditioning unit. They, they, they could do that. And I had somebody I could call on. And, and when I you know lost all those people, once I sold my businesses, it, it was up to me to do those mm-hmm. things. And it wasn't that it was a lot of effort, but it was just one of those things sort of hanging over your head. Yeah, yeah. Um, when it no longer know, I, made sense for where you're going next. Yeah, exactly. So it, it wasn't germane to where I was going and, you know, kind of creating more of a virtual business and a more of a traveling type business with a consulting. Um, you know, and the other thing, was obviously from a timing standpoint, and this is unfortunate when you're, you know, when you have a landlord is you have to kind of think about it from the lease standpoint. Right. Um, you know, the lease was coming up. So we decided let's try to sell it. If not, we know, we didn't know if we could sell it because we were right in the middle of COVID. <laughs> but, uh, you know, we were deciding if we were going to sell it or not. The other thing, Henry, and we've talked about this is, you know, it wasn't necessarily consistent with my values. Um, in terms of the type of, you know, I try to eat really high quality food. Um, and I think, you know, my wife had a little bit of difficulty with being in this business, uh, selling what, you know, selling yogurt and toppings. Um, if it was a salad store, you know, she might've felt better about it, but, um, (laughs) you know, there was a a little bit to that. I mean, not, not that it, it, uh, it violated my values, but, um, you know, it, it was sometimes it was difficult to say why. Why am I doing this? Yeah, the term that I like to use for that is a business needs to be in alignment with your personal goals and plans. Right. And over time, sometimes ten years is a long time. A business 
and that's part of what happened here, can fall out of alignment for where you are now. Yeah. Or where you want to go next. Yeah. And so that's, that's part of what I think we're talking about here. Now, so the lease was coming up. That was the impetus for, all right, are we ready to commit? Were you, were you ready to commit to another five years? The answer was no. For right. me, I would have, but I wasn't the one there dealing with it, nor was I the majority owner. But let's just talk about for a moment the impact that COVID did have on our business. So those of you who are listening who had any kind of food-related business can understand quite well. And actually, I think we were fortunate that we survived it and ended up still being profitable in 2020. But we never had to shut down completely. Thank goodness for that. We were able to stay open for takeout only. And that certainly helped. But that happened to us twice last year where we had to shut down for a period of time, right? Yeah, yeah. So we shut down and, you know, we shut down the indoor dining and people came in, which was good. And we appreciate people coming in. And yeah, uh, we, we had to add some functionality to our point of sale system for people to do online ordering, which was different. We couldn't really take advantage of Grubhub or, or Uber Eats or anything like that because our product is so perishable. I mean, if it sits for five minutes... <laughs> Yeah. It's a it's a much different product than if you make it and eat it right away. So we didn't feel like we could control the transportation of the product through through those entities. So we just decided not to do it. And plus, you're buying a you know a five to eight dollar you know product. You can't pay twenty five dollars in transportation charges to to get it. So it, it really didn't. If you're buying a nice dinner for four people, yeah, you can pay twenty five dollars to have that delivered to your house. But th those particular entities, it was super expensive to be able to do this. And we you know people were going to do it, but we didn't want them getting a product that you and I weren't proud of. Exactly. All right. So yeah. we've touched on it already. So we just want to recap here on the impact on a partnership. And again, as I said earlier, I, I believe in partnerships. It's how I've done most of my businesses. I've talked a lot about partnerships. One of the things that I preach about it is, you know, I have a, a, a tool that you can download if you go to the show notes page for this episode at thehowabusiness.com. And I call it a memo of understanding, which is a checklist of things that you should discuss with your partner before you start the business. And David and I did that. The thing is, is what we've talked about is over 10 years, things change. That alignment, again, going back to that term, changes. There's no way we could have anticipated when we started the business in 2011 that we would end up 10 years later with you on a slightly different path than I'm on. But that's what happens. That's the reality right. of business and of partnerships. I think that we did do a good job, though, over the last, I don't know, probably for the, over the last three years, we've had that annual conversation about, should we put it for sale next year? Should we put it for sale next year? And we knew, of course, on the horizon was, the end of this lease. And I think probably about two years ago, we had the hard conversation about you wanting to sell. And we made the decision that now it was a matter of just when, right? Of course, COVID happened, which we weren't planning for. And so we had to sell in the middle of COVID. Not ideal. We certainly, in, in my opinion, it's not easy to, to come up. I mean, it is easy to come up with the point that we could have sold it for more perhaps a year from now or two years from now, but that timing just didn't work out. Does did not allow for that. Right. 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 So. Yeah. And it was, it was, you know, you, you and you and I had not taken a distribution in 2019 and 2020 until after we sold the business. 
And so you think about, okay, we're running a business. We're not taking any distributions. It's, it's profitable, but it's not profitable enough to take distributions. Plus, we don't have any idea what's going to happen in the future. So we were a little afraid to take distributions. So that, that didn't help, right? So we had right. a lease coming up. We had COVID. It was frustrating. Wasn't quite aligned with what we were doing. And it wasn't really making enough money for us to hire an operations manager. That's the other part of that. If we could have maybe both been remote and just owned the business, that might've been something different, but it, w- it didn't make enough money for us to- Well, we didn't have, yeah, we didn't have the skill. But to clarify, we, we did have a shop manager. It's just we over did. that person, we did not have someone that took the calls or the emergencies or the, you know, what do I do on this? And do I repair that? Or, you know, those kind of decisions- that still all fell on you. Yeah, yeah. And it, it was just, you know, we, we, we didn't have somebody who could run it even close to the way we, we wanted to run it. Yeah. All right, let's just talk briefly at a high level as we start to, to wrap it up here, uh, the process that we went through, because I think that's always, people are always interested in how we went about it. We decided not to go with a broker very, very easily because the, the portion, the commission to, that we would have had to pay to a broker for this size business just did not make sense to us. We just couldn't justify that, right? Right, right. Yeah, and, and it, it just, yeah, we, we felt like we could sell it ourselves and we were right. able to do that. So primarily the way that we promoted that it was for sale is we put it on Biz Buy Sell. That's a very popular website that that's great. It, and it generated some interest, there's no doubt. The surprising one, which we hesitated on, which is where our buyer came from was on Craigslist. Yeah. So you, I think you were the one that decided, let's put it on Craigslist. Yeah, I, for some reason, I think there's been businesses on Craigslist before. And I said, let's go ahead and put it on Craigslist. So, you know, I, I think it in some cities, it costs money. I'm not sure it costs money. and co- I'm not sure we paid to have it on Craigslist. Yeah, if it was, it was nominal. Yeah. So we did biz by sell. That generated some interests, several potential buyers. Craigslist. I don't know that it generated but the one, but that's all it took. And then we sent an email. We have a very large, or had a very large email list of existing customers. And so that was a that was a tricky decision. You know, I had to give that some thought as to whether we sent out to our buyers, excuse me, to our customers that, hey, the business is for sale. I was a little hesitant because I thought, well, does that communicate that we're about to shut down or that we're not doing well? Uh, so it was important to phrase the email the right way. But I think you helped me with thinking through this and saying, you know what? I don't, I don't think it's a bad thing. Yeah. We, we had a lot of loyal customers who liked iTopit, whose kids grew up in iTopit and the owner that owns it now, their kids grew up in iTopit. And so it means a lot to them to own it. And I, the, the business didn't, wasn't successful or not successful because of the ownership, because of the customers didn't, didn't know the owners. There was a very few very few of our customers who knew where the owners were. That's right. So I, I didn't think it mattered. If if you and I were big figures in the business and it was going to really impact the business, then yeah, I, w- I would have been concerned about it. But since you and I weren't germane to the operation in terms of how the customer interfaced with what went on at iTopit, I actually thought it was a good thing because they were our most loyal tribe. And if you know somebody thought about owning a business, they'd be the best people to to, to take a look at it. We had a lot of people look at it and then decide not to do anything. Absolutely. And so our process was, we received a lot of inquiries, a lot of interest. And, and so did that email, as, as David is, is explaining, that we sent out to our customers, right? It was very positive. 
And so our process was, I got those inquiries. I scheduled an initial phone call conversation to chat more about it at a high level. That screened out a lot of people, especially because people, once they understood what we were asking for and the wherewithal and that we had decided not to extend any kind of, uh, of uh, financing, personal financing from a seller's perspective. So that, that cut out some people. So that was the first round. Then if somebody was continued to be serious, we had them execute a non-disclosure agreement. And then after executing that, we shared with them our financial statements, our profit and loss statement and our balance sheet usually included David meeting them at the shop to, to give them a tour. And I think an important point to talk about here, we made a decision to be transparent with our staff, in particular, our manager, Jade, who's a great manager that we've had with us for know, over two years now. Right. So we decided, because that's, that's always a tough decision, and there is no right answer. You really have to think about the impact on your business. When I sold my salons business, for example, there we determined that the impact was too great for that perceived instability. In this business, as you articulated, I don't think we had that issue. And so we were transparent with Jade and even put together a compensation plan for her to incent her to stay with us as well as through the transition. I think that was the right decision by far, right? Yeah, I agree. I agree. I think yeah. it did make a difference. It kind of took the, the hiding it did, yeah. Um, you know, having to hide about it. And, you know, when I was giving people tours and why I'm talking to people about the business, I mean, it's amazing how employees eventually figure out what's going on. <laughs> exactly, exactly. Um, so, And I think in the right situation, again, this doesn't apply to every business. There are some businesses where I definitely agree keeping it secret is a must. But try to figure out if maybe it's you're hiding behind that and it might be better to just be transparent about what's going on. So uh, after that, then we executed an LOI, a uh, uh, letter of intent. And what that does, and uh, at least the way that we used it is it spells out, even though it's not a binding contract, and it has language in it that says that it's not a binding contract to either side. It's a very common practice to state and to put forth your seriousness of intent. And the way that we used it is you begin to negotiate and agree to the primary terms of what will end up being the purchase agreement. So that's what we did next. Then while you're under that LOI, the buyer has an opportunity to do due diligence, investigate our financials, take a look at all of our systems, spend some time in the shop. And then if all that worked out as it did with this particular buyer, you execute a contract. And in our case, we did an asset sale. Not going to dive into that in this episode, but it's important to understand that that's typically what you want to do is an asset sale, not a legal entity sale. So an asset sale. And then David met with uh, the new owner at a bank. That was what we'd agreed to. We could have done that as we did, or we could have had an escrow agent or an attorney serve as a third party. But there was enough trust there between the two sides at that point that the buyer and we were comfortable going to a bank and then somebody there served as a witness to the contract. Right, David? Yeah. 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 So you want that you want to, so we notarized the contract, which was important. And the, the LOI is good. So there's not any misunderstanding too. I think you, you might not have emphasized that, but the good thing about the letter of intent is it, it takes away any misunderstanding. So when you start developing the contract, it's, you know, there's not a lot of questions about what, what it is you're doing. You don't want to do those things verbally because people hear things differently. And 
especially when it comes to money, uh, people will, you know, people will misinterpret what's being said. So getting it on paper is really important. Great point. Yeah, great point. Right. And then after closing, and this was all negotiated and part of the contract, there's a transition period. And that's, that's very important. And that's, of course, all negotiable. But we certainly, the spirit of what we wanted here and what we want is we want to be able to walk into ITOPID five years from now, 10 years from now, and it's still just as successful of an ongoing concern as when we left it. That's what we want, right? And I think part of ensuring that is having a transition period that effectively transitions the business to the owner, not just here are the keys, good luck. And so you've been working extensively with the buyers to transition the business. Our manager, Jade, who is great, has stayed on and has transitioned. As to whether she'll stay on long-term or not, that's, that's between them, but at least she was there as a transition. And then I've been helping them from a marketing and the online systems component to make sure that the transition is as smooth as possible. Yeah, yeah, we wanted to make sure. And, and the new owner has been very appreciative of the fact that we've been working with them and willing to help out. And, um, you know, at least for this particular owner, you know, the level of activity has dropped off. And I don't think I've talked to the new owner in the last couple of weeks. So a lot of activity in the first four to six weeks. And then last two or three weeks, it's gotten pretty quiet. Yeah, so which is just great. offering that and making yourself available is really important. It's not a complicated business, so there's not a lot of transition that needs to be done, but it did give the new owner a lot, lot of confidence that if they bought the business, they would get the help they need. Yeah, and they're doing a great job. And it's great to see, you know, as you mentioned, I, I think that that was, we were so happy that they are the owners when we think about the comments you made where his daughter, who's going to be involved in the business, as he says, grew up in the business. Now, part of it, I have to admit, made me feel old <laughs> and tells you how impactful 10 years is. That's a decade. And to have now somebody owns it who brought his daughter when she was nine to this business, and now she's part of owning and running the business, That I, I'm proud of that. Yeah, I'm, I'm really proud of what we did there. I think we created a great environment for people and it's really neat to see people grow up in that business. It's been part of the family's lives and it, they, they made memories there. And I think that's some of the greatest, greatest things we could have done. You know, you want to make money at it and you want it to be a successful, profitable business, but it, it went beyond that for a lot of people. And I think that was really cool. I, I didn't get that same warm and fuzzy running the car washes. People enjoy <laughs> a clean car, but it wasn't a family event. It wasn't that same connection, right? Yeah. The experience was it was a different experience. Yeah, it didn't it didn't make memories for people unless you damaged their car <laughs> and it made good memories for them. <laughs> that was, yeah. But uh, but yeah, but that, I think that's what I loved about the business is you know you see families there and people always were excited to see their family up on the monitor, you know, and even though some of those pictures were five or six years old, I know people, people still, still, still enjoyed it. And I'm, I'm really, I'm really proud of what we did there. And, um, you know, I was glad to partner with you on that. Yeah. And so as we summarize it, the key takeaway from this conversation for us, anyway, this is as much therapeutic for you and I as, as uh, necessarily what the takeaway is, but for me is about the points we talked about partnerships and, and understanding that you may well, and you have to be in alignment initially on partnerships, but things change. And over 10 years, a lot of things happen. Yeah. I think that your point about equal compensation is a big one. I think that what we did well, though, is we, we talked about it along the way as to you know where you were, where I was, and things changed. And so we were open about that. 
But I, you know, if I had to summarize and then I'll have you summarize it is this was, even though the second location was a failure and we had to close it overall for many different reasons, some of which we've shared here for me, I top it was a huge success. Yeah. What are your I, last I, thoughts? Here? I would agree with that. I think it was a huge success and I think it was a you know testament to the partnership and I didn't say it earlier, but you know, you, you didn't really fight me on selling it, which I appreciate, you know, that, that was good. I, I know you, you know, from, from a legal standpoint, you know, I, I had the majority ownership and I could have just sold it, but you were, you know, you were good about agreeing to that. So the, the thing for us was making sure the most important thing for us is making sure we had a long-term friendship because we were friends long before we ever got into business together. And it's important for you and I to be friends long after we ever do any other business transactions. So that partnership component of it, I think was important. The other thing I would tell you just to kind of end is when you sell it to someone else, it's not your business anymore. So you've got to let them run it the way they want to run it. You can't disagree. You know, you might disagree in your mind, but it's now their business. They're going to run it their way. They're going to have ways of doing it. And you've got to be comfortable letting it go, even though it, it was your baby for five or 10 or 25 years. Agreed. Well said. All right. Wonderful. Thanks for joining me for this conversation, David. No, thanks. It was always enjoyable and always look forward to it. Absolutely. Now, this is Henry Lopez and that's David Begin. And thanks for joining us for this episode of The How of Business. We release new episodes every Monday morning and you can find us anywhere you listen to podcasts including at our website, thehowofbusiness.com. Thanks for listening. Thank you for listening to The How of Business. For more information about our coaching programs, online courses, show notes pages, links, and other resources, please visit thehowofbusiness.com.